at the start of opera in the early 1600s, there were very few professional female singers, as to sing in public was simply not done. So what happened? When did this start to change? And when females finally took to the stage, how did the vocal categories come about? Find out more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. For many opera fans, mezzo-sopranos are their favorite singers, as the colorful timbre and expressive potential of the voice never ceases to bring on goosebumps. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and on today's episode, lecturer, Metropolitan Opera radio commentator, and audience favorite Ira Siff will explore the mezzo-soprano voice, its origins, roles, and the great singers who sang these roles during their illustrious careers, many of whom sang on the Metropolitan Opera stage. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to be able to bring you these sessions as podcasts. In the next three we're going to explore the mezzo-soprano voice, its origins, roles, great singers who match that category or who stretch it or who go in and out of it during their career. We're going to deal with great mezzos from the beginning of recording to the present on audio, on video, many of whom sang at the Met, a few who should have but never did. And we'll take a look at artists who explored all the possibilities offered by this category and some who remained within the preordained guidelines of what mezzo meant in their day and operatic milieu. In our time, mezzo roles tend to fall into three categories, witches, bitches, and britches. First category encompasses characters like the witch in Hansel and Gretel, Yeji Baba in Rusalka, Ortrud in Lohengrin. Well, Ortrud sort of pushes her way into the second category, which includes Carmen, uh, Carmen <laughs> Dalila, Clytemnestra, and Lola in Cavalleria Rusticana. The Bridges crew, of course, counts Cherubino, the composer in Ariadne, Octavian, Sesto in Giulio Cesare, Sesto in Clemenza di Tito, and probably anyone else named Sesto in any opera. But early on, these vocal categories, soprano, mezzo, contralto, were far less common and simply not so specific in terms of casting. These days, we have a strict system of casting uh, created by the Germans, who else? And it is, of course, known as the Fach system, Fach meaning category. And frankly, as a result, operatic casting has become pretty much Facht up. Roles which were selected by an artist because of her vocal and histrionic equipment are now cast based on the system of filling slots in particular categories rather than filling roles with artists who might have the perfect gifts for the part. Add to this the visual obsession now in operatic casting, which one might refer to as survival of the thinnest. At the dawn of opera, at the beginning of the 1600s, there had not been that many women singers, period. 
various reasons contributed to this, musical entertainment of what we call the classical sort was mainly for the aristocratic class, court-financed and performed for them. It had to cater to their tastes, and if it evolved uh, depictions of events, tended to flatter the, uh, the ruling class. For ladies of a certain station, it was frowned upon to sing in public, as it was associated with prostitutes and other morally loose sorts. Women who were not of that class simply hadn't the means to study and acquire the necessary skills. Then there was the Roman Catholic Church, which forbade women from singing in church or even on stage. As an alternative, the church used castrati in Italy, even though on the surface of it, their position was that they opposed castration, one of the church's numerous contradictions over the course of centuries. When opera began to appear by Jacopo Berri or Claudio Monteverdi, any female voices were referred to as soprano, simply indicating a female singer, or in some cases, a soprano castrato. When the cast of these operas are listed now, the term mezzo-soprano is often used, and it's indicated sometimes which of the roles were originally taken by castrati. But at that time, such distinctions as soprano, mezzo, contralto were not yet made. It was Handel who made the most significant contribution to inserting women into opera, casting them side by side with the castrati, with tenors, and with basses, as low voices were called then. The advent of the baritone was yet to arrive. Probably the first singer defined by the label mezzo-soprano was Faustina Bordoni, known simply as Faustina. She appeared in a number of Handel operas and was a rival to the soprano prima donna Cuzzoni, for whom Handel also wrote. The rivalry of the two ladies was something of legend, fanned more by their fans than by themselves. It led to cat calls, hissing, fist fights, and eventually abandonment of a performance, and once even of the balance of an opera season. Fans of both ladies in turn battled with those of the star castrato, Senesino. What's interesting is that Handel endeavored, when the two singers performed together, to carefully give them equal shares in terms of arias. Bordoni, the mezzo, was not given a lesser role than Cuzzoni. There was not a seconda donna. That came a bit later and flourished during the Romantic era and in what we now call bel canto operas. Mozart used castrati in his early opera series, but he broke new ground in 1786 with the role of Cherubino in Le Nozze di Figaro, casting a woman to play the hormone-raging adolescent boy, rather than a, a castrato. He reverted to a soprano castrato for Sesto in his final opera seria La Clemenza di Tito, but only because the singer had already been cast by the impresario. And in fact, Sesto's friend Agno was given... Uh, at the premiere to a female soprano, and that was a male character. Both roles are now cast with female mezzos. It seems probable that had Mozart lived, he would have continued using women to play uh, women and to play young men. As the century turned, Rossini emerged, and he used castrati in his early works, most notably the legendary Velluti, but before long, he wrote almost exclusively for what we now call mezzo-sopranos, and he wrote incredibly virtuosic music for them, both in his dazzling comic operas and his grand opera series, 
he married one of them, Isabella called Bran, called a soprano svogato, or literally a choked soprano, implying a limit to the upper extension of the voice. Roles like Semiramide were written for Colbran, in which high notes were couched in rapid scale passages rather than sustained lines. Rossini loved the richness of the mezzo-soprano voice, its earthiness, and the range's ability to better enunciate text than higher voices. When we examine the operas of Bellini and Donizetti, we find some curious things. In our time, we like to categorize. We like an opera to have a soprano and a mezzo, particularly if the, if the characters are rivals. But when we look at, say, Norma, we discover that the role of Adalgisa was written for Giulia Grisi, a lyric soprano who also created Elvira in I Puritani, what we now think of as a high coloratura role. And likewise, she created Norina in Don Pasquale. Adalgisa, in fact, sings just as high as Norma. Likewise, in Donizetti's Anna Bolena, Giovanna Simor may be seconda donna role, but it's just about as high as Anna. And Maria Stuarda, written for two rival sopranos who engaged in a legendary bout of fist-fighting, scratching, and hair-pulling at the dress rehearsal for the premiere, is now always cast with a soprano in one role and a mezzo in the other. So interchangeable are the roles vocally that sometimes a mezzo is Maria and a soprano Elisabetta, and sometimes it's the other way around, but there's always one of each. It really depends more on vocal color and temperament than on range. Verdi helped codify the difference in the two ranges with his high mezzo roles like Azucena, Amneris, and Eboli, and defined it further when he cast his first La Scala Aida and Amneris as his first soprano and mezzo in the Requiem. And even when the title of a Verdi opera was not given to the soprano, she was clearly the star, and of the two women, the prima donna. By the Verismo era, the delineation was clearer, although even there the role of Santuzza in Cavalleria Rusticana, the first Verismo opera, has been sung by both mezzos and sopranos. In French opera, Saint-Saëns gave us a mezzo prima donna with Dalila and Massenet with Charlotte in Werther, although again, sopranos have sung Charlotte. Today, and uh, for the next two sessions, we're going to listen to, and in some cases, uh, hear some, some of really the, the greatest mezzos uh, balancing the program, not chronologically, but more just in terms of moving from one hopefully marvelous artist to another, sometimes related in one way or another, sometimes unrelated. Now, let's begin with some comparison shopping between a soprano and a mezzo cherubino. I'm not exactly editorializing in favor of my preference for a lighter voice, or shall I say brighter voice cherubino, over darker voice mezzos, because I think it conveys youthfulness, because both artists we're going to sample are lyrical in their approach and marvelous. What I wanted to show was how rather arbitrary our casting has become in favor of category over choice of artist. We're going to hear two superb cherubinos, Teresa Stratus from an old, uh, the sound is from an old black and white television show, and Maria Ewing, the sound taken from Jean-Pierre Ponel's film of uh, Le Noce di Figaro. Now, Stratus, as a soprano, has a melting ease with the vocal line mezzos don't always possess, 
and Ewing a lyric mezzo, who later moved into soprano repertoire with questionable effects on her lovely instrument, here captures the adolescent's hormonal dismay at his uncontrollable horniness, both day and night. De Ponte's reference to what teenage boys do when they fantasize being a rather racy bit of text for 1786. Just hearing the audio, both magnificent interpretations carry. Strata speaks, or rather sings, volumes with her supple, sensual vocalism. And Ewing has a gorgeous but richness but flexibility to the voice. So we are going to hear both Teresa Stratus and Maria Ewing in a row, kind of comparing a mezzo, well, soprano first, a soprano and then mezzo, Cherubino.
mentioned, Rossini was a composer enamored of the mezzo voice, and he used it extensively in both his serious and comic operas. And we're going to hear from two exponents of his music from two different eras, one who excelled in his heroic male impersonator roles, uh, and she was a star from the 1960s through the early 90s, and one who specialized in his uh, reviving his comic female roles in the 1920s and 30s at a time when really only the Barber of Seville was being done, and then only with Rosina sung by bird-like coloratura sopranos transposing it up. So the first is, of course, Marilyn Horn. Horn grew up in California, and her first gigs included vocal groups singing on TV, dubbing the voice of Dorothy Dandridge for the film of Carmen Jones, and recording cover albums of pop songs made famous by big stars, which sold at dime stores for $1.98. In 
She began as a soprano, scoring particular success as Marie in Berg's Wozzeck. She also sang roles like Mimi in La Bohème and Tatiana in Eugene Onegin, while under a fest contract in Germany for several years, so stuck in a Fach. The turning point came when she landed the role of Agnese in Bellini's Beatrice di Tenda in a concert performance in New York at Town Hall with a new star coloratura called Joan Sutherland. Although the role is uh, somewhat like a second soprano role, Horn's affinity for, uh, affinity rather for bel canto music and her remarkable agility were discovered by Sutherland and her husband Richard Bonning, and the soprano and mezzo became a team, performing together somewhat on stage, but a great deal in the recording studio. Uh, from this pairing, Sutherland was Norma to Horn's Met debut as Adalgisa. Horn became a huge star then on her own, specializing in the pants roles of Rossini, like Tancredi, Malcolm in La Donna del Lago, and Arsace in Semiramide, which we'll sample next. Horn's approach to agility perfectly matched the structure of Rossini's music, which includes extremely rapid notes which jump in intervals at lightning speed and often traverse vocal registers, particularly the tricky jump between chest voice and head voice. Horn used a glottal fluctuation, uh, creating vocal divisions, but without the aspiration of an H between the notes, making their phonation clean and accurate as if by magic, with no apparent effort. Her chest voice was large, and she used it generously to lend impact to her male impersonations and a certain spirit and gutsiness to her female characters. We're going to watch, uh, rather, sorry, we're going to listen to her in a 1985 concert. I would say this is at the tail end of her very considerable prime, and she's singing Arsace's second aria, In Si Barbara, from Rossini's Semiramide. Now, the plot of Semiramide defies the limits of even the most outrageous opera plots. Babylonian queen Semiramide is in love with the young officer Arsace. Semiramide had, years before, dispatched her husband and ruled on her own. She is now beholden to choose a new king, and in order to lure the young man she loves to her side, she decides to choose Arsace for the throne. Arsace, meanwhile, loves Atsema, a princess closer to his own age. In the course of events, Arsace learns that Semiramide is actually his mother, and that the dead king was his father, and that his mother murdered his father, and now wants him as her husband. He is not having a good day, but his situation does inspire some remarkable vocal music. In this aria, Arsace laments this barbaric fate, but then is roused to thoughts of revenge by a rather militant chorus of priests, who serve as backup singers for the spectacular Cabaletta. So here's Marilyn Horn singing In Si Barbara from Rossini's Semiramide.
singer on record is as purely delightful as the Spanish mezzo Conchita Supervia, although Supervia sang a variety of repertoire and fortunately recorded a great deal, it was her sparkle that made her a natural for the comic operas of Rossini, which she revived with great success along with the conductor Vittorio Gui in the 20s and 30s. Supervia was born in 1895 in Barcelona to an old Andalusian family and was educated at the local convent. But at the age of 12, 
entered the Conservatori Superior de Musica del Liceo in Barcelona to study singing. She made a stage debut in 1910 at the astonishing age of 15 at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires. In 1911, she sang the role of Octavian in the first Italian language production of Richard Strauss's De Rosenkavalier at the Teatro Constanzi in Rome. In 1912, she appeared as Carmen at the Gran Teatro del Liceo in her native city, a role which, uh, with which she would be associated for the rest of her career. And she made her American debut in 1915 as Charlotte in Massenet's Werther at the Chicago Opera, where she also sang in Mignon and Carmen. Back in Europe, by the end of the First World War, she was invited to Rome, where she started this Rossini revival that made her world famous as Angelina in La Cerentola, Isabella in L'Italiana in Algeri, and Rosina in The Barber of Seville, in the original mezzo keys. All in all, she made more than 200 recordings, featuring not only her famous roles in opera, but also a vast song repertory in Catalan, in Spanish, French, Italian, English, as well as pieces from Tarzuela, and even operetta. In 1930, she made her London debut, and the following year, she married a Jewish businessman from London, Ben Rubenstein, and she settled there. Her cover garden debut was in 1934 in La Cerentola, and in 1935, she repeated that part, plus L'Italiana in Algeri and Carmen. She had a powerful chest register linked to a flexible upper voice that could cope easily with florid passages, allied to a musicianship of great individuality and infectious flair. Pregnancy forced her to cancel her planned appearances in the autumn of 1935. On the 29th of March, 1936, she entered a London clinic to await the birth of her baby, which was sadly stillborn on March 30th, and a few hours later she herself died. She was buried with her baby daughter in a grave in the Williston Jewish Cemetery in northwest London. The grave, which had fallen into disrepair, was refurbished by a group of admirers and reconsecrated in October of 2006. We're going to hear an excerpt from Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri, recorded in 1928. Supervia is joined by baritone Vincenzo Bettoni as Tadeo. In this duet, Isabella has been shipwrecked in Algiers as she searches for her lover, Lindoro, who's also been lost at sea. With her is her older suitor, Tadeo, in whom she has no romantic interest. The two snipe at one another, both in an irritable state due to their circumstances. But toward the end of the duet, they decide instead to join forces and outsmart their Algerian captors. Supervia's infectious charm, textual bite, and sparkling vocalism are unmatched, in my experience, in Rossini's comic roles. She's just marvelous. So here's Conchita Supervia in the duet with uh, Vincenzo Pettoni as Tadeo from L'Italiana in Algeri. <laughs> Io so far, io so far l'indifferenza 
Ma io so fare, io so fare l'indifferente, ma un geloso impertinente, sono stanca di soffrirsi, so stanca, so stanca, so stanca di soffrirsi, so stanca, so stanca, so stanca di soffrirsi, di soffrirsi, di soffrirsi, di Si comprendo, comprendo tutto quel che può avvenir, si tutto quel che può avvenir, si tutto quel che può avvenir, si tutto quel che può avvenir. Che sciacqua amante, è un gran supplizio. Donna scaltra, è un precipizio. Meglio un turco che un bricone. Meglio il fiasco che il lampione. Meglio un turco. Meglio il fiasco. Che un riccone. Che il lampione. Meglio il fiasco che il lampione. Che il lampione. Buone al diavolo. In malora. Più non buono, più non vuo con te carrire. Buona notte, mia signora. Ho finito, ho finito di impazzire. Buone al diavolo. In malora. Più non vuo. Buona notte, sì signora, ho finito di impazzire, ho finito, ho finito, ho finito di impazzire, ho finito, ho finito, ho finito di impazzire, ho finito di impazzire, ho finito di impazzire, ho finito di Il 
Metropolitan mezzos, who should be better remembered than she is, is Bruna Castagna. Castagna actually sang 168 performances of 11 roles at the Met between 1936 and 1945. She was a formidable Verdi mezzo, clocking in 55 performances of Amneris alone. Another of her great Verdi mezzo roles was Azucena in Il Trovatore, and I have chosen an excerpt from that aria as we have a number of Amneris excerpts coming up with a number of mezzos in the coming sessions, so I thought to vary the menu a bit. Curiously, this excerpt, the great monologue, Condotta Lea is from a 1945 Met broadcast of Trovatore, Castagna's second from last performance before she retired at 40 and settled in Argentina. And she is clearly still in wonderful voice. She gives a highly compelling reading of Azucena's tale of accidentally burning the wrong baby, certainly opera's greatest oops. And uh, the Manrico to whom she tells the story is Kurt Baum, who was a regular at the Met at that time. She sails to the high A and B flat of the aria while it's at its conclusion, she pours out prodigious chest tones as she tells Manrico, 
that when she thinks of that rather unfortunate error, her hair still stands on end. Certainly mine does when I hear the thrilling delivery of that chest voice at the end of the aria. The conductor is Cesare Sodero, and this is Condotta Lera in Cepi from Il Travatore with Bruna Castagna. Thank <laughs> you. 
As I mentioned, the choice of Azucena for Castagna's selection was made in part because there are a number of Amneris's I'd like to play for you, and in terms of best showcasing the singer and choosing an excerpt that fits time-wise into our podcast, it boils down inevitably to the Act 4 duet with Radames that precedes the judgment scene. It is in this duet in the uh, and in the Act Two rivalry duet, of course, with Aida, that Amneris can really cut loose, as well as in the Judgment scene, but here with more sustained singing than in that scene. So now, fasten your seatbelts as we move on to Verdi's Aida, or I should say, Amneris, in the hands and throat of the volcanic me- Mexican mezzo. That's hard to say, volcanic Mexican mezzo, Oralia Dominguez. This mezzo had a long and very varied career. She's best known for the live performance that we're going to hear, some of which um, is really legendary. It's a rip-roaring 1951 Mexico City Aida opposite the young Maria Callas and Mario Domonico. Both Callas and Dominguez were 26 years old at the time. But Dominguez also sang bel canto music later, like Cenerentola, early music like Arnalta in Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea, Verdi Requiem, I heard her in the Rossini Oratorio Petit Mess Solennel, and she even recorded Wagner's Erda in Das Rheingold. She was extremely musical, even refined when called for, and yet she's best remembered for her wildly unhinged Amneris in Mexico, where at 26 she tore up the stage and nearly stole the show from Callas, who retaliated by inserting a long high E-flat into the end of the triumphal scene. We're going to hear Dominguez now in the Act 4 judgment scene duet with Mario Del Monaco. Dominguez never sang at the Met, Our Loss, but as all of Callas' performances were broadcast in Mexico City and resulted in famous pirated recordings a decade or so later, Dominguez's place was immediately assured with this spectacular performance her powerful chest voice is balanced at the other end of the scope by solid high B-flats and a plush middle range, and Dominguez, at 26, may not have been the sup- really subtle artist she became in terms of the gradations of Amneris' jealousy, insecurity, and desperation, but she makes all the points in broad, thrilling strokes, and Delmonico, in his prime at 35, is no slouch either. Occasionally, because of the microphone placement, kind of sounds like a trio with the prompter. So we're going to hear the thrilling 
judgment scene duet of Amneris and Radames, Aurelia Dominguez, Mario de Monaco, Mexico City, 1951.
Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have a fiery mezzo with all the goods that Domingo had, but also capable as uh, uh, sorry as Dominguez had, but also capable as Dominguez later became of artistry of the subtlest variety. When I first heard Anita Rashvelishvili in 2011, I was immediately struck by the sense that this was a really important voice, very rich in color, ample of volume, with a strong low register. But there were technical issues. The voice tended to flat in the upper passaggio and seemed to lack high notes altogether. Then, over the years, this young artist worked so hard to improve her technique and carefully build her instrument in range and dynamic control that she became an Atsucena Amneris Principessa in Adriana Lecouvreur that featured no holds-barred vocalism when called for, but also nuanced line readings and inflections, a product of her extreme intelligence, and a floated pianissimo that would make any soprano proud. One of the most ravishing moments of the previous season was the end of Act One of Saint-Saëns' Saint-Saëns et Dalila, when Rashvelishvili spun out an elegantly seductive printemps qui commence to lure Samson back into her spell and get him to her lair for a haircut he'd never forget. Although uh, the HD transmission went to Elena Garancha, who premiered the, uh, the production, we have a wonderful studio recording that Rashvelishvili made of the aria, and it is incredibly subtle, beautiful, floated vocalism, sensual, refined, seductive, everything this aria is supposed to be. So we're going to hear wonderfully for us a mezzo from now that hopefully we'll be hearing again live uh, soon a number of times. Anita Rashvelishvili in Printemps qui commence from Sansons, Sanson de Dolila.
One of the most beguiling artists at the Met, elegant, virtuosic, vocally charming beyond words, was the Spanish mezzo, Teresa Berganza. Berganza was born in Madrid. She studied piano and voice at the Madrid Conservatory, where she was awarded first prize for singing in 1954 and made her concert debut in Madrid in 55. She made her operatic debut as Dorabella in Così Fantute in 1957 at the Aix-en-Provence Festival, and the same year she made her La Scala debut, and the following year her debut at Glyndebourne. In 59, Berganza made her first appearances at Covent Garden as Rosina in the Barber of Seville, which became one of her signature roles, and in 1967, she made her Metropolitan Opera debut as Cherubino in Le Nozze di Figaro. At the Med, she was one of the most elegant Rosinas I've ever seen, understated in delivery, vocally lovely. As a recitalist, Berganza made her Carnegie Hall debut in 64. Her concert repertoire included Spanish, Italian, French, German, and Russian songs. From 1957 to 77, Berganza was married to the composer and pianist Felix Lavilla, with whom she recorded and performed regularly and with whom she has three children. It's Berganza as a recitalist that we're going to experience uh, in this session in the first song from Granado's cycle, La Maja Dolorosa, O Muerte Cruel. She's accompanied here by Lavilla, and the intimate song repertoire showcases so well Berganza's gorgeous voice and refined artistry, artistry with the drama communicated perfectly through these means. So here is Teresa Berganza, O Muerte Cruel.
Our final singer today is one I have loved for years and was fortunate enough to catch in concert in 1973 at Town Hall, months before she died. I knew her a bit from recordings, but her tenure at the Met was before my time. Jenny Terrell was born in 1900, June 9th, 1900. She was a Jewish, French, Russian, American operatic mezzo-soprano known for her work in both opera and recital performances. Born in Russia with the surname Davidovich, as a young girl, she played the flute, then she studied piano. After the Russian Revolution, her family left Russia and later moved to Paris, where she continued to study piano and contemplated a concert career. She then began to take voice lessons with no less than Ronaldo Hahn and decided to devote herself to professional singing. Terrell made her European operatic debut at the Opéra Russe in Paris in 1931. She subsequently sang at the Opéra Comique as Carmen, also singing Mignon, Charlotte and Werther, Marcellina in The Marriage of Figaro. And for 10 years, she was a star at the Opéra Comique. Now, this chapter in Terrell's life was brought to an abrupt end by the German invasion. With her longtime companion, the gifted painter Jakob Mikkelsen, she escaped just a week before the Germans entered Paris. Along with other desperate refugees, they set out on a hair-raising journey, part of it by foot, that brought them to Portugal. An epidemic of typhoid was raging in Lisbon, and Torel became very ill. She had the good fortune to be admitted to a nunnery where she was taken care of until she recovered. After many difficulties, Torel and Mikkelsen obtained the necessary visas for Havana, from which they made their way to Canada and finally New York. Torel's American career did not get underway at once. She was unknown in the United States. She didn't have a manager. She had barely recovered from the trauma of her abrupt departure from Europe. She tried to make her way into the musical world of New York at first with no success. Then she made the acquaintance of Frida Roth, a musical agent who was deeply impressed by the beauty of her voice and became her professional representative. Roth persuaded Toscanini to give Torell an audition. The great conductor engaged her to sing with the New York Philharmonic. Soon she also appeared with Kusevitsky and the Boston Symphony and with Stokowski and the Philadelphia Orchestra. And in these performances, she was revealed to be a star of the first magnitude. Her career at the Metropolitan Opera was brief, but important. She made her debut in May of 1937 as Mignon and appeared for a few seasons in the 1940s as Rosina, Adalgisa, and Carmen. Now, earlier I mentioned that the role of Rosina was dominated for about a century by coloratura sopranos. And at the Met, it was sung by the likes of Lily Pons transposing the music up. Torell was, in fact, the very first mezzo Rosina in the Barbara Seville at the Met, a landmark return to Rossini's intended voice type from that tradition of bird-tweet coloraturas that had become the norm until 1945. Torell became a naturalized American citizen in 1946. In 1951, she created the role of Baba the Turk in Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress, 
She gave the first performances of many songs by Leonard Bernstein, who was a great fan. She sang with him many, many times in concert. In later years, Jenny Terrell devoted herself to recitals, orchestra engagements, excelling particularly in the French repertoire, and the one I heard in 1973, when she was 72, was spectacular with gorgeous pianissimo, sublime artistry. And she also taught at Juilliard. I remember when I attended the uh, Callas classes in, as an auditor, one of the best students was someone who said she had, was studying at that time with Jenny Terrell. Terrell died on November 23rd, 1973, in New York City. Amazingly enough, although be bringing all this authenticity to the Met by restoring Rosina to its original mezzo place, Torell continued a tradition long held in the house of replacing Rosina's lesson scene aria, the wonderful Contrancore, with some showpiece arias. Before her, singers like Sembrich, Calicurci, and Pons interpolated arias or songs they just felt like singing. In fact, Sembrich interpolated three selections into the lesson scene at her first Rosina at the Met, including the Proc variations for Coloratura Soprano and two German lead. Subsequently, she did Johann Strauss's Voices of Spring. At her farewell Rosina, she interpolated, in addition to the Strauss, a duet from Don Pasquale with her Alma Viva in that show, Alessandra Bonci, and Anonjunje from La Sonambula, and then a Chopin song accompanying herself on the piano. Well, at least when Torell replaced the written lesson aria, she did it with another aria by Rossini, composed for his subsequent uh, opera, La Cenerentola, and in fact written for the same mezzo who created Rosina. So there was some fidelity and authenticity here. Now this tradition, of course, uh, no longer exists. The quality of the aria contro encore has become recognized and also uh, it was recognized uh, the fact of what happens during it is absolutely crucial to the plot of Barbara of Seville. Uh, we're going to hear uh, Torell now in the aria that she interpolated, the rondo finale from La Cenerentola, Nacquia la Fano and Non Piumesta, tossed off with a plum, as well as some rather nimble and surprising vocal ornaments. This is from a Bell Telephone Hour radio show of 1945. Jenny Torell singing the fabulous finale to Rossini's La Cenerentola. And that concludes part one of our mezzo-sopranos. Most opera goers are accustomed to hearing a coloratura soprano in the role of Rosina in the Barber of Seville. Well, it may interest you to know that this part was written originally for mezzo-soprano, and that for the first time in its history, the Metropolitan presented the opera this past season with Jenny Turrell as the heroine. She won for herself new honors for her work in this difficult and exacting role. Accompanied by Donald Voorhees and the orchestra, Jenny Turrell repeats for us this evening the scintillating virtuoso piece she sang in the lesson scene, the rondo from Rossini's La Cenerentola, Miss Turrell. <laughs>
sorgesse il pianto perché tremar perché tremar perché a questo stena a questo stena was lecturer and Metropolitan Opera radio commentator Ira Sif guiding us through the fascinating history of the mezzo-soprano voice. Tune in next week when Ira takes an even deeper look at singers who continue to make these mezzo-soprano roles unforgettable in the second installment of his Marvelous Mezzo series. 
For more information, visit metguild.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.